0: This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification points through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, Planning Committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solove Research Institute. Lymphoma that's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. In
1: 1832, British pathologist Sir Thomas Hodgkin published a case series of six patients with cancer involving the lymph nodes and spleen titled on some morbid appearances of the absorbent glands and spleen. In his day, the most common causes of lymph node and splenic disease were tuberculosis and syphilis. But Sir Hodgkin described a different disease, and his findings were largely ignored at the time. But three decades later, Sir Samuel Wilkes, another British physician, published 15 cases of very similar pathology and used the term Hodgkin's disease to describe this, at the time, universally fatal condition. It wasn't until the 1900s, with the aid of microscopy, that pathologists Carl Sternberg and Dorothy Reed discovered the eponymous Reed-Sternberg cells, which are a hallmark of Hodgkin's lymphoma. By the 1930s, physicians noticed regression of the disease with exposure to X-ray beams, leading to the use of radiation therapy to treat the condition. Another milestone in treatment came in 1964, when a group of scientists led by Vincent DeVita, Jr. was able to cure half of Hodgkin's lymphoma patients with a combination of chemotherapy called MOPP. Meanwhile, at least 61 other forms of lymphoma have been described, and these were clustered under the umbrella term non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Today, there are over 800,000 people living with or have had lymphoma in the United States, with new cases numbering 90,000 a year. Fortunately, the survival rate of Hodgkin's lymphoma has greatly improved over time, and it's now considered one of the most curable forms of cancer. Treatment for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma has similarly seen great improvements, rising from a 5-year mortality rate of or 5-year survival rate of 31% in the 1960s to now greater than 75%. To review lymphoma and updates in treatment and outcomes, I've invited two of Ohio State University James Cancer Hospital's hematology experts. I am pleased to introduce Assistant Professor of Hematology, Dr. Timothy Voorhees. Tim will be presenting today by pre-recorded video and will be focusing his talk on diffuse large B-cell lymphomas. I have in the studio with me Dr. Yazid Zawala, who is an Assistant Professor of Hematology specializing in Hodgkin's and B-cell non-Hodgkin's lymphomas. Yazid, welcome to MedNet.
2: Thank you, Jingjing. Jing. Happy to be here.
1: Awesome. Now, with over 60 forms of lymphoma, it seems like a very heterogeneous disease. What are some of the broad categories of lymphoma to help us break things down?
2: Yeah, so we generally classify lymphomas into Hodgkin and non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Mm-hmm. And then within a non-Hodgkin group, there's B-cell and T-cell lymphomas. Mm-hmm. And then within each group, there's also indolent or slow-growing lymphoma and aggressive lymphomas.
1: Perfect. All right. I look forward to hearing more about that. Now, if you haven't already, please check out our website at go.osu.edu mennet 21 You can find all 120 of our webcasts there, along with slides and instructions to get your CME credit and ABIM MOC points. You can also listen to our programs by podcast. Search for MedNet21 CME on your podcast app. If you have any questions about any of our programs, please send those to us using the Ask a Question feature on the bottom of the webcast. Now let's get started. Tim?
3: So today I'll be discussing identifying high-risk diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, or DLBCL, and the management implications. So first, disclosures. Um, I do receive some research funding from a couple of pharmaceutical companies based on some clinical trials that I'm involved in. As far as objectives for this talk. Uh, First, we'll look at methods of detecting high-risk diffuse large B-cell lymphoma through prediction models, cell of origin, and molecular risk, as well as imaging modalities. Then we'll move on to discuss management decisions with selection of appropriate therapy and future directions. So first to define diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, DLBCL is a lymphoma with an incidence of eight cases per 100,000 individuals in the United States. The median age is 70 years at the time of diagnosis. Most patients will present with B symptoms, which are weight loss, night sweats, fatigue, poor appetite, lymphadenopathy. And pathology uh, from biopsies uh, are typically described as architectural disruption of the lymph nodes with large malignant B cells. Regarding long-term outcomes in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, RCHOP chemotherapy has been the standard for over 15 years. And so R-CHOP chemotherapy is rituximab, doxorubicin, cytoxin, vincristin, and prednisone. This was first studied in a, uh, a Phase 3 study in the early 2000s, RCHOP versus CHOP chemotherapy, And here we found that the 10-year overall survival with RCHOP was 43 percent compared to the 10-year overall survival with CHOP being 27.6 percent. So this has led to RCHOP really being the standard of care uh, since the early 2000s. But let's first talk about prediction models. So the the most highly used prediction or prognostic index uh, is the revised international international prognostic index, index. On the left side, you can see the risk factors that go into this prognostic index with age greater than 60, stage 3 and 4, elevated dehy- lactate dehydrogenase, performance status greater than or equal to 2, and extranodal disease, all uh, counting for one point within the prognostic index. On the right, you can see that as we add up those pro- uh, IPI points, You can group patients into risk groups by very good, intermediate, or poor risk, and the four-year progression-free survival and four-year overall survival decreases uh, as you go up in the risk factor. Next, let's talk about cell of origin and molecular risk. So cell of origin, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma can be subtyped by cell of origin. And so B-cell maturation at the time of transformation is really what we're talking about from a cell of origin perspective. And so uh, B-cells can originate from the germinal center within the lymph nodes and develop into diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, or they can uh, develop into diffuse large B-cell lymphoma outside the germinal center or non-germinal center-based. This uh, distinction really was uh, based on gene expression differences seen between these two types of diffuse large B-cell lymphomas. But gene expression assays are really not available clinically, so we are unable to assess uh, in real time uh, gene expression differences uh, um, uh, regarding the differences between these DOVCL cohorts. However, Hans criteria, uh, which is the clinically available uh, equivalent, estimates the gene expression for cell of origin. So here we're going to talk about cell of origin by Hans criteria, and so this is either germinal center type or GCB type or non-germinal center, non-GCB type. Germinal center type is uh, characterized by expression on the outside of the lymphoma cells by CD10 expression, or CD10 negative, BCL6 positive, MUM1 negative uh, expression. Non-germinal center type is characterized by CD10 negative, BCL6 positive, MUM1 positive expression, or CD10 negative, BCL6 negative expression. On the right, you can see that the five-year overall survival, uh, based on uh, whether or not the patient's lymphoma started as a germinal center B cell or a non-germinal center type, uh, is significantly different. With uh, GCB diffuse large B cell lymphoma having a five-year overall survival of 70%, and non gcp diffuse large B cell lymphoma having a five-year overall survival of 30%. Next, let's talk about expression patterns and genetic translocations, or double-expressor and double-hit diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. MYC is a known oncogene that activates expression of a variety of proliferative factors within these cells. It can be overexpressed or it can be genetically translocated, leading to overexpression in these lymphomas. BCL2 and BCL6 both are tumor suppressor uh, uh, proteins that stop apoptosis and promote cell survival. They can both, again, be overexpressed and or genetically translocated within the tumors. So double-expressor diffuse large B-cell lymphoma is characterized by both MYC and BCL2 overexpression within the malignant B-cells. Double-hit diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, which now carries the distinction of high-grade B-cell lymphoma, is characterized by MYC genetic translocations, often leading to MYC overexpression, as well as either BCL2 or BCL6 translocations, often leading to those uh, proteins being overexpressed as well. On the right, you can see the five-year overall survival of uh, all diffuse large B-cell lymphoma patients being approximately 70%. And if you look at the cohort of patients with double expressor disease, this decreases to 36 percent and those with double hit have the worst fiber overall survival at 27 percent. How about genomic driver drivers of diffuse large B cell lymphoma outside of genetic translocations? So there have been several large-scale genomic sequencing studies uh, performed, the largest of which uh, was performed on over 1,000 diffuse large B-cell lymphoma patients sequenced through whole exome sequencing. And there were alterations uh, associated with increased risk of death. Uh, and you can see these uh, genes listed below here that were, list, uh, that were related, with increase, related to increased risk of death. However, when we compared clinical IPI risk with genomic risk based on those genetic uh, abnormalities, there was really no significant difference, which kind of leads to the fact that probably a lot of the genomic risk uh, is expressed in clinical uh, features, which we pick up with with our uh, International Prognostic Index. Next, let's talk about imaging modalities. So, FDG PET-CTs are the most commonly used um, uh, imaging modality for uh, evaluating diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And a new way to evaluate these is through looking at metabolic tumor volume, or MTV. And so this is uh, calculated from PET scans by summing the volumes of all lymphomatous lesions on the PET scan. And and here you can see uh, that in a cohort of over 100 patients with newly diagnosed diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, When we divided this into quartiles just based on volume of disease, the three-year overall survival uh, decreased with increasing amount of uh, metabolic tumor volume. When we combined metabolic tumor volume with other molecular risk features such as double expression, you can see here that the three-year overall survival was 80 percent in those with low metabolic tumor volume and no double expression, 60 percent in those with high metabolic tumor volume but no double expression, and unfortunately, the 3 overall, overall survival was 0% in, the, in this group of patients who had high metabolic tumor volume and double expression at the same time. So in summary, from defining high-risk diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, the RIPI uh, uh, prognostic index risk score uh, provides a very good estimate of survival and is used in a lot of clinical trials these days. Cell of origin is also really important, as well as double expression and double HIT. We know that genetic alterations can predict survival, uh, but these are not really available in the clinic yet and not often used. And high volume disease is known to be an independent risk factor, which may or may not be captured by uh, changes in the IPI or other pathologic features. So let's switch uh, our discussion over to talk about management decisions and selection of appropriate therapy. So, again, From long-term outcomes of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, we know that RCHOP chemotherapy has been the standard of care for over 15 years. Again, this is rituximab combined with three chemotherapies, doxorubicin, cytoxin, and vincristine, along with the steroid prednisone. This is delivered uh, on one day, every 21 days, and the goal is to treat a patient with six cycles of chemotherapy for advanced-stage diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Rituximab is a uh, CD20-directed antibody Uh, That depends on antibody-dependent cell cytotoxicity, so there are other components of the immune system, such as natural killer cells and others, that actually help rituximab uh, cause cytotoxicity to the uh, target cells, which are the malignant B cells. Chemotherapy uh, inhibits the cell cycle through a variety of different mechanisms, but is not selective to the uh, the lymphoma and can affect other components of, of the body. With this regimen, we expect the 10-year overall survival to be 43.5%, based on the original clinical trials. So, one question that was asked was, "Is more chemo better chemo?" Uh, so, we looked at r versus dose-adjusted R-EPOCH in all DLBCL patients, and here you can see the difference. Really, is the addition of a topoiside to R-EPOCH. So, R-EPOCH is rituximab, a doxorubicin, cytoxin, vincristine, and prednisone. So a lot of chemotherapy. Uh, and with more chemotherapy came more toxicity. Uh, grade three and five toxicities were seen in three uh, se- sorry, seventy-eight percent of those treated with RCHOP, and 98% treated with REPOC. Grade greater than or equal to three febrile neutropenia was seen in 18% of those treated with RCHOP and 35% treated with REPOC. In grade greater than or equal to 3, neuropathy, which is quite severe neuropathy, was seen in 3% of patients with RCHOP and 18.6% of patients with r So does additional chemotherapy lead to better outcomes despite increased toxicity? Unfortunately, not really. Uh, the five-year progression-free survival in all DLBCL patients was 66 percent in RCHOP uh, chemotherapy-treated patients and 68 percent in epoch treated chemotherapy patients. The five-year overall survival was virtually identical at 78 percent in both cohorts. So, so some tried to look at the subgroup analyses because we know that there are higher risk groups of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma patients such as double expressor uh, disease, and there was really no difference in, in this group. And some looked at whether or not higher IPI scores, so those you know, with IPI scores of three to five. In, in this group, there was a potential trend towards improved progression-free survival with our EPOC. But you know, due to toxicity, we typically don't recommend going with uh, aggressive chemotherapy for those patients. Now, we did want to touch on how do we manage patients with double hit diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, which if you you recall is the highest risk uh, or one of the highest risk groups of patients. And unfortunately, in this group of patients, which is uh, a smaller subset of all diffuse large B-cell lymphoma patients, there's really no standardized or randomized data to compare these uh, two chemotherapy regimens. There are limited prospective data um, uh, available. Uh, There has been a phase two-study looking at R-EPOC chemotherapy in which 19 patients with double-hit uh, disease were treated with uh, r and the two-year two year overall survival in that clinical trial was about 70 percent. That is better than what we would expect with R-CHOP chemotherapy, but given that it was not randomized in this study, it is hard to, to say for sure. There is additionally multiple retrospective analyses that have gone back to look at patients treated with r And the two year overall survival in those cohorts have uh, ranged around 70 to 75 percent, which kind of confirms or or adds data to the prospective data as well. Now, let's go back and talk about have there been challenges to RCHOP chemotherapy over time. There have been multiple. Uh, The first uh, or largest scale that... uh, 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 challenger was the remodel b trial which was a phase three trial of bortezomib combined with rchop chemotherapy compared to rchop chemotherapy and so in this study patients were stratified by cell of origin using gene expression profiling so patients actually had to wait until that gene expression profiling uh, was actually processed before they could go on to treatment on the trial now over a thousand patients did undergo gene expression profiling These uh, um, gene expression profiling found 244 uh, activated B cell type, which is equivalent to non-GCB diffuse large B cell lymphoma, 475 GCB type, and then 195 that unfortunately couldn't be classified based on the gene expression profiling. The 30 month progression free survival in all patients on this trial was 70% for RCHOP and 75% for the bortezomib RCHOP chemotherapy, which was not statistically significant. And so, one of the issues with this trial that brought up was uh, the time that it takes to gene expression profile patients, and that those patients that are really in the highest risk category that uh, can't wait to to start chemotherapy may not have gone on this trial, and could have led to you know really not seeing a significant difference between the, the uh, investigational arm and the standard of care arm. The next challenger was the Phoenix trial, which was a phase three trial of ibrutinib with R-CHOP chemotherapy compared to R-CHOP again. This was stratified by cell of origin. This time, using Hans criteria, or non-GCB uh, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, which is clinically available and can be uh, uh, determined quickly for these patients. There were or oh, sorry, 836 patients under, uh, who underwent randomization, and. On this trial, there was no difference in event-free survival with a hazard ratio of 0.93, and there was no difference in overall survival with a hazard ratio of 0.99. Now, there was subgroup analyses within this study in which they looked at patients who were less than 60 years old with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, who were treated with uh, ibrotinib, RCHOP, compared to RCHOP, and those patients did seem to have some benefit. So this has led to the hypothesis that toxicity from ibrutinib uh, may have limited any potential benefit in older patients. And now with newer generation BTK inhibitors like acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib, which are much better tolerated than ibrutinib, there's still some investigation into whether or not this combination with RCHOP chemotherapy could be uh, beneficial to some patients. The next challenger came from the robust trial, which was a phase three trial of lenalidomide RCHOP compared to RCHOP chemotherapy. This time, lenalidomide was dosed at 15 milligrams daily on days one through 14 every 21 days along with RCHOP chemotherapy. Again, selection was by cell of origin with gene expression profiling, so patients had to wait for gene expression profiling before going on to treatment. Five hundred and seventy patients were randomized. And uh, lenalidomide RCHOP, unfortunately, did not show an improvement in progression-free survival with a hazard ratio of 0.85. Again, this led to the same discussion about highest risk patients can't wait for gene expression profiling and may have limited the ability to really impact uh, outcomes for those patients. And finally, we have Polarix, which was a phase three study of polituzumab, RCHP, versus RCHOP chemotherapy. And vedotin is a CD79B uh, antibody drug conjugate targeting the B-cell, and this is substituted into the regimen in, the, in place of the vincristine chemotherapy seen in our job. In this study, they selected by the IPI score, which is, again, a clinical risk score, which is easily available and can be calculated quickly for patients. 879 patients were randomized. Polizumab RCHP did improve progression-free survival with a hazard, hazard ratio of 0.72, which was statistically significant. The two-year progression-free survival was 76.7% for polizumab RCHP compared to 70.2% for, uh, for uh, RCHOP. And there was no overall survival benefit seen in the study at the time of report. Uh, so this You know, despite no overall survival benefit, this was actually the first study to really beat RCHOP chemotherapy in diffuse large B cell lymphoma. Now there's still some debate around uh, the magnitude of the 6% progression free survival benefit at two years, but more will come over the, the subsequent years as we get longer term follow up for both progression free survival and overall survival. But the good news is that uh, toxicity is very similar between polytizumab RCHP and RCHOP chemotherapy. There was more neutropenia uh, in the polytizumab RCHP-treated patients, though this could be abated by using uh, nulasta growth factor support, and so this will be the plan for all patients receiving that regimen. Again, looking at subgroup analyses, which we have to do with caution, of course, because it's not statistically uh, planned to, to look at subgroups within a study, uh, but the largest benefit, you know, likely was seen within a combination of the highest risk IPI score of those with, you know, IPI of three to five, the ABC subtype or the non GCP subtype, non bulky disease in patients who were older and great, greater than 60 years of age. So in summary, uh, from the chemotherapy compor, uh, portion of this talk, RCHOP uh, has been the standard of care for decades r epoch is more toxic but no better than R-CHOP in all the DLBCL patients. However, r epoch is likely still beneficial in double-hit diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, though there's a lack of prospective randomized trials to really prove this. There are multiple regimens that have really failed to beat R-CHOP chemotherapy in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And very recently, polatuzumab RCHP is the first to show a progression-free survival benefit, although there's no overall survival benefit at this time. So more to come from that uh, study in the future. So we'll quickly touch base on future directions, as uh, there are very promising therapies coming down the line. So uh, ongoing clinical trials at this time that are of interest to us, uh, there are additional antibody therapies that are being combined with RCHOP chemotherapy. There's chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy, and there are bispecific antibody therapies. Regarding additional antibody therapies, uh, there is a phase two study looking at all patients getting zelovirtamab, verdotin, plus RCHP. And so this is a ROAR1 antibody drug conjugate, which again targets a a, a protein on the cell surface and carries a chemotherapy with it uh, to target the lymphoma. There's a Phase three study of tafacitimab with RCHOP chemotherapy uh, versus RCHOP um, chemotherapy, and tafacitimab is a CD19-directed antibody which is very similar to rituximab in terms of uh, how it targets the disease and and the effect it has. Chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy is an emerging therapy that we're going to see more and more of. So CAR T-cell therapy is a modified uh, T-cell from the patient, which has been uh, basically modified to target an antigen on the tumor. Most of the approved CAR T-cell therapies and investigational CAR T-cell therapies at this time target CD19 as the most common target. CAR T-cell therapy is beneficial in second-line treatment for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma and carries an overall survival compared to additional chemotherapy. And it's now moving into the frontline treatment uh, through the Zuma 12 trial where uh, this is a phase two trial of frontline CAR T-cell therapy in the highest risk groups of patients. So those with double hit disease or with an IPI score of greater than or equal to three. And so with a um, preliminary response rate from this trial, 40 patients 89% 89% of the patients responded in this trial, and 78% of them achieved a complete response, which is really remarkable uh, given how high risk these patients um, were when they started therapy. And finally, we have bispecific antibodies, which are equally uh, exciting. Uh, so these are antibodies that target two different portions. Um, on one side, they target the disease by targeting CD20, somewhat how rituximab targets CD20. And on the other side, they lead to immune activation through uh, targeting CD3, which is a, a T cell receptor that leads to T cell activity. There are two phase two trials of bispecific antibodies being studied with uh, RCHOP chemotherapy in the frontline setting for diffuse large B cell lymphoma. The first being Glofitamab plus RCHOP, which is a CD20, CD3 bispecific antibody. And the second being Epcoritamab plus RCHOP chemotherapy, which is a CD20, CD3 bispecific antibody. So in summary, for future directions, there are multiple ongoing studies uh, to test new immunotherapies combined with RCHOP or polartuzumab RCHP. CAR T-cell therapy and bispecific antibody therapies are likely the most promising at this time for continued improvement in outcomes. And finally, you know, once we can show improvement with newer immunotherapies, we need to consider how to de-escalate chemotherapy portions of these novel regimens to limit toxicity going forward in the future.
1: Thank you so much, Tim. For the second half of our talk today, Yazid will be discussing indolent lymphomas. Yazid?
2: Thank you, Jengsheng. So uh, we'll go briefly over lymphoma subtypes and how we classify lymphomas. And then we'll go in, in some details about follicular lymphoma, marginal zone lymphoma, and Waldronstrom macroglobulinemia. These are the three most common types of indolent B-cell lymphomas. And just go over an overview of how, how, how we approach indolent B-cell lymphomas. So as we mentioned, uh, lymphomas are classified into Hodgkin and non-Hodgkin lymphomas. Non-Hodgkin lymphomas are much more common, so there are around 87,000 new cases in the United States every year compared to 8,500 cases of Hodgkin lymphoma. Non-Hodgkin lymphoma in turn is classified into B-cell and T-cell or N-K-cell. B-cells are much more common and each has indolent and uh, aggressive subtypes too. We want to focus on B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Um, my colleague Tim Voorhees was talking about DLBCL, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, which is the most common type of lymphoma overall and is a type or the prototype of aggressive B-cell lymphomas. In terms of indolent lymphomas, follicular lymphoma is the most common with 14,000 new cases in the United States every year, followed by marginal zone lymphoma around 7,500 cases. And then lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma, Waldenstrom, is much less common around 2,400 cases. Mantis cell lymphoma, I, I can include it here separately. It's, it's, in a way, it's a hybrid. It has some features of aggressive lymphoma and some other features of indolent lymphoma. And then we also have CLL, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, then SLL, small lymphocytic lymphoma, which I included here separately. CLL, by definition, is a leukemia, so it has significant peripheral blood involvement, um, and that's why it's not considered a lymphoma, but it's a lymphoid malignancy, and, and along with CL, SLL, it's an indolent uh, B-cell lymphoid malignancy. So in general, these indolent B. non-Hodgkin lymphomas, as the name implies, are slow-growing, meaning that they grow over many months to two years. This is in contrast to uh, aggressive lymphomas that typically grow over weeks to few months. Uh, most of these patients present at advanced stage, so stage three and four disease. They're generally considered incurable with the exception of early stage disease when treated with radiation therapy, those cases can be potentially curative with, uh, can be potentially uh, be cured with, with radiation therapy. Uh, for most patients, um, because this is an incurable disease, they go through periods of time where they get treatment, they go in remission uh, typically for many years, and then their lymphoma relapses and then go through another treatment, go in remission for years, and so on and so forth. So they have a relapse, or the lymphomas have relapsing and remitting course for most patients. Um, by default, for these lymphomas, we treat them only if there's an indication to treat. So the default is to observe these lymphomas if we can, unless we really have to treat them. And we usually treat to um, control symptoms or to prevent organ damage, as we can discuss later today. For most patients with these indolent lymphomas, they can anticipate a normal life expectancy. Um, this is unfortunately not true for all patients, so in around 10 or 20% of patients, they can end up dying from their lymphoma, unfortunately. And in the way this happens, it's usually one of a few things that happen. So either their slow-growing lymphoma or indolent lymphoma will transform into an aggressive lymphoma. That's typically more, or can be more life-threatening. Or if they don't respond to treatments or relapse uh, quickly after finishing treatment, that usually indicates a higher risk indolent lymphoma they can be also resistant to subsequent treatments and can potentially be life-threatening too. As I mentioned, these indolent lymphomas carry a risk of transformation to aggressive lymphomas. Fortunately, the risk is low, it's around one to 2% per year. Because these patients are expected to live with these lymphomas for many, many years, the, the risk is cumulative, it does add up. And again, this is one of the main reasons uh, these uh, lymphomas can uh, 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 kill, kill our patients, unfortunately. In terms of diagnosis and staging, I'm sure you've heard this before, fine needle aspirate is inadequate to diagnose most cases of lymphoma. An excisional biopsy is preferred whenever feasible. If not feasible, then a core needle biopsy is usually sufficient in most patients. We typically check complete blood counts, complete metabolic panel, lactate dehydrogenase or LDH, which has a prognostic value. We also check uh, HIV and hepatitis panel, especially before we start treatment. We use PETs and CT scans for follicular lymphoma for staging, and certain cases of marginal zone lymphoma. We typically use CT scans for lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma. We um, perform bone marrow biopsies in selected patients when we think the result of the bone marrow biopsy might change treatment. So that's not necessarily done in all patients. And then we typically check serum monoclonal protein, especially in patients with lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma and marginal zone lymphoma, that commonly have an M protein or monoclonal serum protein. A diagnosis is made by pathologists based on several features, including morphology, immunophenotype, and molecular genetics. I just included a table here, for example. Um, these are um, certain markers that we look at to differentiate between different types of, of uh, lymphomas. We also rely heavily on the use of molecular uh, uh, alterations in genetics. So, uh, looking at cytogenetics, fish for chromos- chromosomal translocations, and also mutation panels because there are s- certain mutations that can be characteristic or sometimes t- sometimes diagnostic of certain types of lymphoma. This slide just shows the uh, if the approved treatments in a uh, few types of B-cell lymphomas: DLBCL in blue mantle lymphoma in orange, and follicular lymphoma, marginal zone lymphoma, and lymphoplasmocytic lymphoma in green uh, over the last six or seven years. Um, you can see that we've had um, really numerous new drugs approved in these lymphomas. Uh, we've had at least one drug approved each year, and, and uh, there are certain years we've had three or four approved. So definitely uh, a lot of new therapeutic advances have been happening in, in these B-cell lymphomas, which we are very excited and happy about. The new treatments are um, either belong to a category of novel or targeted agents, so small molecules targeting uh, certain enzymes or pathways in the B-cell, or types of immunotherapies, so whether they're antibodies, or antibodies conjugated to chemotherapy, or cellular therapies such as CAR T-cells, or the bispecific antibodies. Okay, let's talk about follicular lymphoma in, in some detail. So again, this is the most common type of indolent B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Most patients present with painless lymphadenopathy, which may wax and wane, so it's not uncommon to hear from patients that they had some lymph nodes for a few months, they seem to improve for some time and then grow again and improve and so on and so forth. Uh, Most patients, up to 85%, present again with advanced stage disease, so stage 3 and 4. Only a small subset of patients, 20%, uh, have B-symptoms, so less common than what's seen in aggressive Uh, be someone hodgkin lymphoma or Hodgkin lymphoma and follicular lymphoma can be a very heterogeneous disease so just to show you some relatively common presentations we see in our clinic so this is a patient um, who was basically seeing uh, uh, her dentist her dentist uh, felt a cervical lymph node um, on the left side that led to an ultrasound followed by a biopsy that showed follicular lymphoma and then a PET scan that showed just this isolated cervical lymph node on the left side. She had a bone marrow biopsy that was negative, so she uh, had uh, she has stage 1 disease that was treated with radiation therapy. So completely asymptomatic incidental finding on exam. This is another patient who felt a lump or basically an axillary lymph node on the left side. Um, he otherwise was feeling okay. He also had uh, uh, imaging CT scans in this case and a biopsy, that confirmed follicular lymphoma. He then had a PET scan that showed lymph- diffuse lymphadenopathy above and below the diaphragm, also with splenic involvement, so that's stage three disease. Um, he didn't have severe symptoms, but if you look at his PET scan, he has a relatively large tumor burden, and for that reason, we decided on treating him. So he uh, received six months of chemotherapy, which he tolerated really well. This is another patient who presented with severe abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, Also B symptoms, he had fevers, night sweats, and weight loss. Um, um, Workup, including biopsies, confirmed uh, follicular lymphoma. And then if you look at his PET scan, you can see these very bulky lymph nodes in the abdomen, but also lymphadenopathy elsewhere in the body. And if you look at his pelvic bones and the femurs, there's also increased uptake, indicating bone marrow involvement, so had stage four disease. We also treated this patient with chemotherapy but with kind of more sense of urgency given his symptoms. So just a kind of few examples of how you know, the presentation can range from really incidental findings to mild symptoms to um, some patients where you see in clinic and you decide on, you know you need to start treatment in a week or two uh, because of their symptoms. In terms of indications for treatment, so I kind of mentioned that the default is that we observe these patients unless there's a reason to treat. So we have what we call the GILF criteria. These are criteria that we use to basically decide on treatment. They're more commonly used in clinical trials, but we also rely on them in our practice as well. So having any one of these indications or more is usually a good justification to start treatment. And so these include involvement of at least three nodal sites, each with a diameter of three, of, uh, three or more uh, centimeters, any nodal or extranodal mass at least seven centimeters in size, having B symptoms, splenomegaly, I would say significant splenomegaly, we don't treat any patients with just mildly enlarged spleen, significant pleural or peritoneal effusions, significant cytopenia, such as a, a leukocytopenia, so white count less than one. Thrombocytopenia platelets less than 100. I'd also add anemia, especially if the hemoglobin is less than 10, and then significant peripheral blood or leukemic involvement, too. In terms of treatment, uh, I mentioned if there's an early stage, so stage 1 or limited stage 2, that can be irradiated safely. Uh, that's the recommended treatment for most patients. Radiation can be uh, uh, curative in these patients. Then, otherwise, if, if the patient is asymptomatic and they have low tumor burden, we typically recommend observation or watch and wait approach. When systemic treatment is indicated, we have several options and we factor in um, a few things, including the patient's age, fitness, comorbidities, and their wishes too. Uh, But if if the patient has uh, low tumor burden or they're unfit, we typically treat with rituximab monotherapy. That's usually very well tolerated and can lead to uh, good outcomes. For patients with high tumor burden who are fit, um, our um, more recommended treatment is chemotherapy in combination with an anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody. So typically bendamostine plus rituximab. This is a six-month treatment course. And then we have other options like linalidomide. This is an oral uh, immunomodulator that's usually combined with an anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody. Linalidomide is active in several lymphoid malignancies. Um, It's not approved uh, in in frontline use in follicular lymphoma, but it's commonly used off-label in combination with chemotherapy as a non-chemo option, uh, which really depends on the patient and physician preference. This is kind of our approach for treating patients with relapse high tumor bur- burden follicular lymphoma. Um, just to show you can kind of our typical approach. So we typically for most patients we treat them with bendamustine rituximab frontline, and then once they have relapse we uh, use lenalidomide or rituximab for most other patients, and then after that if they relapse after that we have several options. Um, that can be again tailored depending on the patient's age, comorbidities. So if you have an older or frail patient, we might use mucinituzumab. This is a bispecific antibody. We also have targeted agents like tazimetastat. This is an, an oral agent that inhibits an enzyme called EZH2, and then a the PI3 inhibitor called copanlisib. In younger, fit, younger or fit patients, especially if they have, if they have high-risk disease, in addition to mucinituzumab, we have CAR T cells and autologous stem cell transplant, which are Generally, a little bit more intensive treatments than the other treatments I mentioned. So, definitely a lot of options. Um, then again, we try to f- uh, tailor these treatments based on patient and disease related factors. Uh, I'm not going to go over this in detail because my colleague Dr. Forhees uh, mentioned this already. So, um, chimeric antigen receptor or CAR T cells are approved in aggressive lymphomas, but also in follicular lymphoma. These are basically uh, autologous T cells, so T cells taken from the patient uh, themselves. They're engineered to express a receptor called CAR. Uh, This receptor can uh, recognize antigen on on tumor cells, in this case B cells, CD19 specifically. And then this receptor also has signals to activate the T cells. So once these cells are engineered in the lab and pharmaceutical company, basically, they're infused back to the patient where they uh, basically go and and hunt and kill these these B B cells. Uh, Dr. Varouhy also mentioned the bispecific antibodies. This is a relatively n- newer treatment, uh, which we, we're very excited about. So these are also monoclonal antibodies, just like rituximab, but they target two antigens. One of them is CD3 on T cells, and in, 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 in case of B-cell lymphomas, what's currently available is CD20. So they bind to CD3 on T cells. They basically grab the T cell and then the CD20 on the B cell. So they grab the T cell beside the B cell so that the T cell can kill the B cell. They're approved in aggressive lymphoma, DLBCL, and follicular lymphoma too, and also multiple myeloma and, and certain acute leukemias too. Okay, moving on to marginal zone lymphoma. We have three major subtypes uh, extranodal or malt lymphoma. This is the uh, most common type uh, of marginal zone lymphoma, accounting for almost two thirds of, ca- of the cases. They can rise at really any extranodal site usually in the context of chronic antigen stimulation from the autoimmune disease or chronic infections. Uh, the most common site is the stomach, but they can arise, again, in the uh, lacrimal glands, in the salivary glands, in the lung, colon, dura, and many other sites. Whenever we can, we prefer RT because it's a very effective treatment for these patients and can cure uh, a lot of uh, uh, patients with localized disease. Splenic marginal lymphoma is a less common subtype, around 20% of the cases usually patients present with uh, splenomegaly and lymphocytosis or peripheral blood involvement and uh, also commonly bone marrow involvement. And then nodal is very similar to uh, follicular lymphoma where patients typically present with lymphadenopathy. I mentioned that marginal zone lymphoma usually arise in the context of uh, infection. So H. pylori is, is um, probably the most common infection associated with marginal zone lymphoma, can lead to gastric malt lymphoma, Hepatitis C is also relatively uh, uh, common, uh, especially with splenic marginal zone lymphoma, but there are other infections too. Um, Gastric lymphoma again, is the most common type, commonly associated with H. pylori, maybe up to 50% of the symptoms. Um, If if we can prove that the patient has H. pylori, usually when when the gastroenterologist uh, does a biopsy, they usually check for H. pylori. If that's the case, if you actually eradicate the H. pylori infection, you can cure or eradicate the lymphoma in most of the cases. So this is our preferred treatment approach whenever we can, treat the underlying infection, and then usually the lymphoma will will, uh, resolve. If it's H. pylori negative and localized disease, then we typically recommend radiation therapy, which is very well tolerated in these patients. Other treatment options are very similar to follicular lymphoma, so rituximab monotherapy, rituximab in combination with chemo, linolidamide, PI3K inhibitors. One one difference is Xenobrutinib or Ibrutinib, these are BTK inhibitors that are active in marginal lymphoma, uh, but not really much in follicular lymphoma. I'm going to use a case presentation as an introduction for the third type of lymphoma. So this is a 53-year-old female who presented with headache, vision blurring, and confusion. She uh, had hemorrhagic retinopathy on exam. And then routine or labs were checked, including CBC, which showed uh, a normocytic anemia with a hemoglobin of 8.6. She then had a complete metabolic panel that showed a very high protein level of 24 gram per DC later. the upper limit of, of normal is eight. So when you have symptoms and signs of hyperviscosity and a very high protein level, there's also a concern that there might be elevated immunoglobulin levels in the blood. So um, that was checked. And indeed, she had the very high levels of IgM, that were confirmed to be monoclonal. So serum, IgM, monoclonal protein in the blood at a level of more than 7,000 milligram per deciliter. And then when the viscosity was checked, it was confirmed to be uh, very high at 13. The upper limit of normal is, is less than two. So she had basically hyperviscosity syndrome from uh, uh, very high levels of M protein, IgM M protein. And then a the bone marrow biopsy was done that confirmed Waldenstrom macroglobulinemia. So let's talk about lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma and Waldronstrom. Uh, let's start with the nomenclature, because I mentioned, um, Waldronstrom sometimes and lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma at other times. Waldenstrom is when we have lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma, plus a serum IGM monoclonal protein, plus BoMA involvement. So we have a lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma without a serum- IgM monoclonal protein, or a non igm serum monoclonal protein, that's just lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma. But most cases of lymphoplasmacytic lymphomas have the IgM serum monoclonal protein and bone marrow involvement. So, 95% of lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma cases are actually from. The symptoms from this lymphoma can arise from organ infiltration, so bone marrow involvement leading to cytopenias, splenomegaly, lymphadenopathy, or extranodal involvement, just like with the other types of lymphoma. But they can also be related to the IgM monoclonal protein. So you can have hyperviscosity, just like in the case I just presented. Peripheral neuropathy, because this M-, M protein can lead to demyelination. Cryoglobulinemia with a vasculitis-like picture, including purpura, uh, peripheral neuropathy, um, glomerulonephritis, and then cold agglutinin hemolytic anemia. We can also see amyloidosis with Waldronstrom or lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma, so light chain depositions in various organs leading to an organ dysfunction, including the heart, kidneys, um, lungs, nerves, and, and others as well. As in other indolent B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphomas, if the patient is asymptomatic, they can be observed. Um, the protein level itself, the M-protein level itself, is not an indication to start treatment, well, we, we get nervous and worried in patients with, where the IgM level um, is more than five to 6,000, because that's when the risk of hyperviscosity increases significantly. Whenever there's an uh, urgent indication to lower the IgM because of symptoms, we have to do plasmapheresis. So for example, with hyperviscosity, just like in this case, and uh, symptomatic triglobulinemia, severe hemolysis from cold agglutinin disease, then you need plasmapheresis to get rid of the circulating monoclonal protein in addition to starting treatment to prevent the production of new um, monoclonal protein. The preferred treatment for symptomatic patients is, again, chemotherapy, the or rituximab, or also another option, a very good option, is a BTK inhibitor such as zanubrutinib or ibrutinib. So going back to our patient, the case, so she was admitted. She needed uh, urgent plasmapheresis for hyperviscosity. She was also started on chemotherapy right away. She unfortunately didn't respond uh, well to, to the chemo. Her protein levels continued to uh, uh, rise between plasmapheresis sessions, so we switched her to a BTK inhibitor, ibrutinib. She also didn't respond very well. She remained dependent on plasmapheresis. We switched her to a third urgent, urgent uh, carfilzomib, Um, didn't really see a great response, and then we switched her to a fourth agent, venetoclax, and she's been on that for more than two years now, with really a good response and a continued decline in her serum IgM monoclonal protein. With with that, I conclude my talk, and um, thanks for your attention. Happy to take any questions.
1: Thank you so much, Izzy. That was a great um, discussion about lymphomas. And um, it was great to hear those cases too, to see, you know, the different ways that follicular lymphoma can present and then also your last case as well. Now, if a patient does present with lymphadenopathy and uh, as a primary care doctor, I'm suspicious that they may have lymphoma, what are some of the tests that would be very useful to help working, working it up?
2: Yeah, I would say definitely history and physical exam, you know, mm-hmm. looking for other areas of lymphadenopathy, B symptoms, you know, history of autoimmune diseases, infections. Uh, complete blood counts, I would say, along with chemistry or basics. Um, if, if, if the physician or provider are not sure about the lymph node, they can order an ultrasound to confirm that. Mm-hmm. CT scans can also be very helpful, too, to define anatomy and, and provide measurements for these lymph nodes. Eventually, if the suspicion is high, based on the history exam and the labs and everything, then a biopsy is needed. Mm-hmm. And again, exigenal biopsy is always preferred and recommended if possible. Otherwise, a core needle biopsy. FNA is usually confusing and rarely diagnostic in these, in these types of uh, uh, presentations.
1: Okay, now, um, is CBC universally abnormal in pa- cases of lymphoma, or can you have a normal CBC and still have lymphoma?
2: Yeah, you can definitely have lymphomas, even aggressive lymphomas, with completely normal CBC. So a normal CBC in no way rules out uh, a lymphoma.
1: Mm-hmm. And are there certain features in uh, imaging studies that will tell you that this is more likely to be lymphoma versus like a reactive lymph node to something infectious, for example?
2: Um, I don't think there are specific uh, imaging features. I think the size is important. So lymph nodes more than one to two centimeter are less likely to be malignant in general, not necessarily lymphoma. Um, larger lymph nodes, those larger than three, three to four centimeters are more likely to be malignant. Uh, I would say the pattern of lymphadenopathy is also important. If you have localized lymphadenopathy, then maybe there's a trigger. Maybe the patient got a vaccine recently or they has come some kind of infection. Whereas generalized uh, uh, lymphadenopathy is, is, is more likely to indicate a systemic process.
1: Mm-hmm. And is there any way to screen for lymphoma? Um, you know, it's, uh, are there, for example, particular patients who may be at higher risk that you'd want to screen for, like maybe history of radiation or something like that?
2: Yeah, so there are certain patient populations who are at higher risk. So radiation is one of them. Patients with family history of, of lymphoma are slightly increased risk of lymphoma. We know that certain agents such as Agent Orange or um, um, you know, certain pesticides can increase mm-hmm. the risk of lymphoma, but unfortunately we don't have good screening tests. Mm-hmm. I also think we don't have good data to support screening, and, mm-hmm. you know, as I mentioned in a lot of these indolent lymphomas at least. Even when we actually diagnose the lymphoma, we don't always rush into treatment. And so there's really a a question about the utility of early detection and intervention for these lymphomas,
1: too. Okay, well, that's helpful to know to discuss with patients. Like, if, you know, detecting it early doesn't actually necessarily help. Um, Now, you know, I think lymphoma is common enough that almost all of us have a patient who either has lymphoma or has had lymphoma. And once they have lymphoma, they're under the treatment of a hematologist. It seems like they're followed very, very closely and very well with their cancer team. But what can we do as primary care doctors and non-hematology specialists to help support our patients and um, help them live healthy lives? Yeah.
2: So that's a great question. Thank you. I mean I think one thing to keep in mind as I mentioned is that most of these patients are expected to have a normal life expectancy. So we should we shouldn't forget about the other preventative things we do for patients without cancer. So Mm -hmm. you know screening for other cancers, mammography colonoscopy um, Etc. You know, optimizing their blood c- blood pressure. You know, diabetes. Um, patients uh, with lymphoma, especially those who get treatment uh, <laughs> with chemotherapy, at higher risk for osteoporosis. So that's something uh, um, to keep in mind. Um, there are certain complications from chemotherapy that we commonly reach out to the primary care physicians to help us with. So steroid induced hyperglycemia, for example, is a common problem mm-hmm. with certain types of chemotherapy. Um, um, you know, routine vaccination as well, I would say. Um, I think in general, communication between the two teams uh, mm-hmm. is, is very important. So please reach out to the hematologist or oncologist with questions. Mm-hmm. I know we, we, we reach out to the primary care physicians with help a lot. So again, I think communication is key.
1: Perfect. Well, that's so helpful. Thank you so much, Yazid. We're going to finish up today's program with a final key point from each presenter. Tim?
3: As a final key point? Identifying high-risk diffuse large B-cell lymphoma is becoming increasingly important as we uh, risk stratify new treatments uh, for these patients, both on clinical trials and new uh, standards of care.
1: And Yazid?
2: Yeah, so the B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphomas, even though they are mostly incurable, they are highly treatable, and most patients can anticipate a normal life expectancy.
1: Thanks so much for joining us today. For our audience, you can receive CME credit and ABIM MOC points for watching by logging onto our website, ccme.osu.edu, and taking the post-test. Join us again next week for our final webcast of the 2022-2023 season. My guest will be Dr. Brooke Rossi, who will be discussing infertility. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in, and farewell until next time.